David Ray to continue his sermon series on Blue Jean Theology. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you again. And I need to begin with a warning. Um, sometimes there are topics that make us comfortable, and sometimes there are topics that make us squirm. This is the more squirmable kind this morning, because it, in this section of James that we're going to look at, talks about some of the dangerous outcomes and risks that can happen if we move our lives in a wrong way, and the resp personal responsibility we have to have in it. After writing for us about persevering through trial, which we talked about the first week, and living out a good, wisely fed life, today... Uh, we're led to a passage that talks about temptation. The Irish playwright Oscar Wilde, uh, who's famous for his one-liners in his plays, said this, I can resist anything except temptation. That's life, isn't it? You know, if we, if we just weren't tempted, we would be okay. So let me ask you, how do you do with temptation? How, how do you manage that in your life? Well, let's listen to what James has to say. We'll put his words right out there at the first, and then we'll, we'll work our way through it. It's over in chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one of us is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin... And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Well, that's a real positive <laughs> boom, isn't it? We've gone from enticement to luring to begetting sin and finally to death. It's almost like when James is writing this part, he's just flashing out, warning, warning, warning. I need to tell you about something you need to be very careful about. Well, I want to parse out this text by having three organizing questions that we'll use to help hang our thoughts on. And the first question that has to do with temptation is simple. Who is to blame? When it comes to temptation, who is to blame? Now let's be honest. We always have an excuse, don't we? We never, we never fess up. At least we don't usually say to somebody who catches us, well, it was, it was my fault. Uh, a while back, uh, there was a conversation between a dad and his little daughter named Sophie, and it lit up the internet, even made it onto the network news, and it seems that Sophie had painted her Barbie doll and uh, some other surrounding things, and the dad was very painfully and patiently trying to get out of her some personal sense of responsibility for what she'd done. Well, just watch. You'll get it. Okay, so Sophie, you just painted your Barbie with nail polish, right? Yes, she told you. She told you to do it. So when Barbie was laying there, Barbie said, I'm going to go ahead and just lay here and you can play with me. And then all of a sudden, Barbie said, okay, can you paint me with nail polish? And she said this a hundred times and I so you were saying, no, you shouldn't put nail polish on Barbie, and she kept saying over and over again, a hundred times, she kept saying, please paint me with nail polish. She said, Dad, a hundred times. A hundred times. 
And then when she was uh, all painted blue, did you think that you should have stopped painting her with nail polish in your room on the carpet? I'm trying to get off, but I was thinking, ah, no, I couldn't get it off. So you tried to get it off, but you couldn't? No, it do off. Now, where are you allowed to use your nail polish? Outside, but when you painted inside, why did you do that? She told me to. She told you to? Yes. Okay, do you, does Barbie know that she could have ruined your carpet and your bed and all of your blankets? Yes, she told me to. I said it was a horrible idea. So you told her it was a horrible idea? should get in trouble? Should Barbie get in trouble or should Sophia get in trouble for using the nail polish in the house? Oh my dad, they, they want me to paint on the nails. Okay, but should you get in trouble or should your Barbies get in trouble? Me, but me, me, because oh, they, they want me to paint on nails. But it's not a good idea, is it? I understand, but next time they tell you to, are you going to let them, uh, are you going to listen to them? No, I'm going to say no, and they'll say yeah, they'll hold you the top that, that video after he keeps going and going and going, and he keeps trying and trying to try. In the end, he says he loves her, and it was, you know, it was a, it was a loving exchange back and, back and forth between them. But, boy, that could be a text for a message, right? If you just look through that, you know, it's like she says, uh... Barbie says to me a hundred times, just do it. She keeps coming back with that same, and you notice it gets stronger as she goes. Not only is the one Barbie, but all of the Barbies are telling her that she has to do that. Or she tried to get the, she tried to get it off. It was sticking on and she couldn't get it done because it was too hard. It was beyond her. I told them it was a horrible idea and they did not listen. Um, what I really like though is when, when he keeps pressing her, he says, so should you be in trouble or should... Barbie be in trouble, and she deflects it once or twice, and then finally she says, me, but. That is the story of our lives, right? Me, but. There's always some kind of defense that we, that we throw up. There's always a Barbie voice in our heads that is saying, <laughs> I wouldn't have done it if the little Barbie had not told me to do it. There was a headline in a, in a newspaper advice uh, columnist Thing, and the headline said, not your fault. This woman had written in and said that she had tried all kinds of forms of therapy to be able to get rid of some self-destructive habit that she had, but it just kept persisting in her life. And so here's the advice. Here's the response she gets back from the columnist. The first step you must take, the columnist said, is to stop blaming yourself. Heaping guilt on yourself only adds to your stress, low self-esteem, worry, depression, feelings of inadequacy, and dependence upon others, let go of your guilt feelings. Now, I need to have a little footnote in here because there, there are sometimes, and maybe some of you have had experiences of stuff that's happened in your life or people that have happened in your life that does make it difficult, does make it challenging. So I, I'll, I'll stipulate that that sometimes happens. But for the most part, our excuses are convenient ones. You know, it may have something to do with how you were parented, but 
maybe not everything. It may have something to do with whether you grew up rich or poor or whatever may have been that you're predisposed to this or that. Or the list could go on and on and on and on. But sometimes those conveniences, those, those excuses of blame are just convenient for us. Charles Sykes has written a book called A Nation of Victims. And he says that the American culture has been overtaken by the irresistible search for someone or something to blame, colliding with our unwillingness to accept responsibility. It's not my fault, he says, has become the loudest and most influential voice in America. Not my, not my fault. And in the back uh, dust cover of the book, he gives this example. Fired for consistently showing up late for work, a former school district employee sues, claiming he is a victim of chronic lateness syndrome. <laughs> that was good, you know, if you don't get out of bed. Chronic lateness syndrome, chronic, I like to sleep syndrome, or whatever that may be. There's always, there's always some kind of excuse. You write that down at your job, and you see how that, how that goes over. We all like to cast blame somewhere else. The argument is... You know, we just couldn't help ourselves. Little Sophia, that's how we live. Back in 1979 in San Francisco, there was a city district supervisor who murdered the then mayor of uh, San Francisco and one of his fellow district, uh, his fellow supervisor. And it's a compl complex case, and there were a lot of things that, that affected what was going on. But the defense attorney in, in the trial felt uh, they argued that there was something that mitigated against uh, him being convicted of the full crime. They said he was experiencing diminished capacity, that he was depressed and he'd been a, he'd been a workout freak, a health nut, but lately he had been eating uh, junk food and uh, a really sugary kind of drinks. And they acknowledged that he was guilty, that he actually had killed these people, but but that it was because of this diminished capacity that he had. He was a good man, they said, with a fine background, they argued. He just, he just kind of had this other thing going on with him. They did not argue that it was because of junk food specifically, but they, they put that out there and said, there are some that wonder, you know, if it wasn't contributing and causing what was going on, at least it was a symptom of what was going on in his life. And and their argument was somewhat successful because the, the, the man, the accused, was convicted not of premeditated mur murder, but of manslaughter. Um, you might remember that they called that the Twinkie defense. At least uh, there was a reporter that came up with that, and it got kind of run out so that everybody else in the press be able to use it. In fact, one of the Supreme Court justices even used a, a comment about the Twinkie defense some years later. You just couldn't help himself. There were reasons why he killed these people. Or back in Texas, there was a, a teen in 2013 who faced trial. He was driving under the influence. He killed four people that he, that he ran over, four pedestrians, and he injured a whole bunch more. And there was a psychologist that, that uh, testified in his trial and, and argued that he had a case of affluence Affluence was the reason. There was this, this kind of media frenzy over that. Uh, the term and the concept was popularized by a PBS documentary, and there was a book called Affluence, The Consuming Academic that was born in, that was written in 2001, and then it was revised a couple times, even up to 2014. Affluenza is defined as this, a painful, contagious, 
socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste, resulting in the dogged pursuit of more. It causes people not to be fully uh, culpable for their uh, actions because they are so uh, obsessed with wanting to have a little bit more. Their, 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 their judgment is compromised in some ways. Now, surprisingly, and this got into the news too, uh, the lawyers for this teen who must have been paid for by some of that uh, money that they were talking about successfully argued that what this kid needed was rehabilitation and not prison. Despite the fact that he was speeding, despite the fact that he was three times more the legal limit of alcohol and he had Valium tranquilizer in his system as well, the judge sentenced him to 10 years of probation. Now, I don't know this kid, and I realize that all cases are complex. And in, in the, San, San, the, you know, the one, the Twinkie defense, and this one, you know, if you did a whole lot of study about it, and I actually read a little bit about this, but they, they almost seem like convenient excuses. Now, this kid, about three years later, did actually spend some time in jail. He got 720 days in jail because he broke his parole. But there was probably some good reason for that, too. I mean, there's always a reason, isn't it, for, for what we've done in our lives. It's always somebody else's fault. It's always some kind of contributing thing that we're dealing with. Now, you read those cases, and they, they hit the news, and they got famous. But you live in your obscure corner of the world, and those kind of things don't happen to you, right? I mean, you don't ever, you don't ever come up with exotic uh, kind of definitions of what may have caused your problem. None of us act like Sophia, right? Well, this pattern actually has been around, it's not modern, it's been around for the whole, for the whole of time. Uh, let me take you back to the Garden of Eden. We were there last uh, week, just briefly, when we talked about uh, what happened between Adam and Eve there. Uh, Adam and Eve have fallen, they have sinfully done something that God comes looking for them in the garden. He's walking in the cool of the day, and he says to Adam, where are you? And Adam responds that he's hiding because uh, they are naked. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you you were not to eat from? And Adam steps up in front of God and he says, yes, Lord, we ate from that tree and we are very sorry. Please forgive us. <laughs> that, that, would, that would be in Sophia's version of the third chapter of Genesis. That's, that's not what happens. What he says is, the woman, and I'm going to call that blame number one, okay? Just put a little asterisk, so that's blame number one. The woman that you, that's God, that's blame number two, put here with me, gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. I did eat, but following the Sophia defense, I did eat, but... And then he goes on to say, really, it's, it's complicated. It really is not my fault. Now, I don't know if they had any more conversation. We have the Reader's Digest version of what happened back in the whole fall of man. I would like to know more about the conversation. And surely, surely there was more that went on. So just let me use an imagination. I can imagine Adam saying, uh, God, you know, I must remind you that I did not ask for this woman. You know, I, it was not my idea. It was your idea. And she is nice to be with, nice to look at, but she was your idea. Now, that's, that's blame two, and I'm going to stick a footnote in that, or uh, you know, a little note in that, because we're going to come back to it, and I really want to focus on his first, the number one. Adam might have said, 
and that, well, that was Eve. The, uh, Adam might have said, you know, it was okay as long as it was me and the animals. I mean, giraffe and the hippo and I, you know, we were, we were doing okay. But when you brought the woman into this thing, you know, if it had just been the animals, maybe this wouldn't have happened. You, you tell me. And what am I supposed to do when my wife comes in and says, here, this is what we're eating today. He said, I acted like a good husband. I mean, that is not what husbands do. They said, sure, you know, it looks, it looks good. I'm going to eat it. Surely it's not my fault. I didn't really have full responsibility for this. Well, God turns to Eve, and he says, so what have you done? And without a moment's hesitation, the woman zips around and takes a look and says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Oh, I ate, but there's Sophia. She was in the garden. You know, it's just that, that same kind of thing. There's that old guilt, that, that same old guilt deflection mode. I'm a victim. I, I did it, but I only did it because, well, the devil made me do it. You know, that, that's kind of, kind of the way. Now, you guys never have heard of Flip Wilson. These, these guys are young. Ask your parents who Flip Wilson was. He always, always used that line in his comedy routines. He would say, the devil made me do it. But he, he didn't create that line. That's what, that's what he says back in the garden. He says, I was just enjoying another good, perfect day when this slithering thing came up to me and talked to me and said this was something that I should do. And, and actually, I didn't make this snake. snake. You made this snake, God. Now, she didn't say that, but I mean, that's kind of the insinuation. Which leads me back to, to the blame number two. We, we've deflected to other people, but now Eve is deflecting to God. And James almost seems to anticipate that answer, that, that defense, when he says, it, it's not really the tweaky defense. It's not the affluenza defense. There is no defense. Don't even think about going there, James says. Verse 13, don't ever blame God. He not only can't be tempted himself because of holiness, but he cannot tempt, he will not tempt you. There's something more going on here. Now, as I read and I studied through this, one other thing that's really equally interesting here is that James does not blame the devil. The devil's not even in the mix of stuff here. He doesn't at least talk about him. Now, a little bit later on in chapter 4, verse 7, he'll say some things about resisting the, le- the, the devil. But right here, it's not God. It's, it's not anything else. He's trying to help us understand that it has something to do with us. Now, sometimes you can find good theology in, in comics. And the prophetic Pogo says this memorable line, We have met the enemy, and he is us. Now, there's a lot of truth in that. We are our own worst enemies. In fact, James says it this way in verse 14. He says, each person is tempted, what? By their own evil desire. Stories told about a guy who needed to go downtown for a meeting. The guy had been on a diet, kind of like Rachel talked about a few minutes ago. And, but he knew that the route that he usually took towards downtown was going to take him by a coffee and a donut shop that he knew he should not stop at. But it was on the road, and so he prayed on the way there, Lord, if it's okay, if you'd like for me to stop at this place, I have a parking space right out in front of the, of the store, and I'll know that, that it's okay. And sure enough, he got there, and there was a space right in front of the coffee shop after the seventh time that he'd gone around the block. Most of us treat 
temptation like that, don't we? We, we find ourselves tempted by something, so we just keep circling the block. We keep circling the block. James says it is all about our own desire. God isn't to blame. He does not lay the blame fully on Satan here. He says the enemy is us. And if we rationalize that it's not us all along, that's not going to change the facts at all. It's only when we move beyond the yes, but, that we actually understand what James is trying to say here. The Apostle Paul was surely a giant of faith. You know, he, he wrote so much of the New Testament. And you look at his life and you think, this guy, he, 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 he is the example of holiness and maturity in his faith. But he said this to his young protege, Timothy, Timothy in 1 uh, Timothy 1, 15. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. The message captures that last line. I'm proof. Public sinner number one. It is only when we ask that question, who is to blame, and we admit that we are the primary characters in this sad drama that we have some hope. Ultimately, it's really all about my responsibility. That was question one. Question two, uh, why is it so dangerous? Why is it so dangerous, this thing called temptation? James uses some really vivid images to unpack this. In verses 14 and 15, he talks about our being lured or entrapped, enticed, entrapped, and like into a tra trap to be drug away, pulled or led into sin. Uh, it's kind of like the outdoorsmansy look, you know, hunting or fishing. You, you kind of got caught in the lure of it all. Now, passion, he says, is what drives us. And passion is not necessarily a bad thing. You can have good passion and you can have bad passion. But it's a bad side that he's looking at. There is an attractiveness that our passion is energized by. Sin is attractive. William Barclay, when he's commenting on this passage, he said, sin would be hopeless if there was nothing in man to which it could appeal. The reason why people sin is because it's fun. I mean, it's satisfying in a way. Uh, it really doesn't help when you're trying to raise your kids if you tell them that, that you won't find any satisfaction in sin. Now, you will find some satisfaction. You can also find death in it and all kinds of other stuff that goes along with it, but there is an appealing sense in temptation to do what you shouldn't do. How do you catch a fish? Do you, do you catch a fish by saying... Here's the bait, fishy, fishy, fishy. Come, some get the bait, fishy, fishy, fishy. That's not the way. That's not the way it works. A fisherman does everything that they can with sparkling spinners that look attractive and, and catch the fish's eye, or wiggling worms, or pulsing lures. And hidden inside them is the hook. You don't just throw a hook in the water because it's a really stupid fish that's just going to strike at a hook. You see, you, what you do is you make it look attractive. Fishing is all about skillful deception. It was the spring when King David was up in his palace at a time when his men were out fighting wars, and maybe it was because he was idle that was part of the problem here. He had no more houses to build or campaigns to forge on his own. And that evening he couldn't sleep, so he got out of bed and he went out on the terraced roof of his palace and he looked over in the moonlit light and he saw this woman bathing herself 
on a rooftop not too far away. It says in the text in 2 Samuel that she was beautiful. Well, of course she was beautiful. That's what, that's what caught his attention. That's, that's what's enticing about sin. That's why temptation is so dangerous because it's attractive. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with wanting to admire beauty, but when that beauty becomes something perverted, that's, that's what created the problem here. And so it says in the story, in the text, in the history of this, it says that David got one of his men to go and check her out. Now, you know, I've read this story a whole bunch of times, but for some reason when I was reading it, this time I noticed something that I don't know why, but I hadn't noticed so much before. And that is, this guy, before he left, he doesn't have to go to find out who she is. The, the man that David is going to send says to David, I think I know who she is. She's not just some goddess on the other route. Her name is Bathsheba. And then he, acts, he actually proceeds to tell David what her father's name was. And then this really important fact, he told her who her husband, told him who her husband was. So David knows she is not just some nameless lure on a nearby rooftop. She is a woman with a name and a father and a husband. And at that point, with that information, he could have chosen to say, well, I better not do anything else about that. But no, that's not what he does. He says, well, you, you, you go on and you find something else about her because she was attractive to him. The bait was there. The desire, the passion was there, and it moved him to take on further risk. Notice the dangerous progression. He saw, he sent for her, she came to him, and then he slept with her. It's a quick process from wanting to grasping, from seeing to doing. And the consequence of it all is that they conceive a child. Then there is this tragic plot of trying to undo all the consequences that were there. I don't know, do you think David would have had second thoughts about this if he didn't know where it was going to lead? If he had any kind of idea how bad things were going to get, that she would get pregnant, that he would plot for the murder of her husband, that they would conceive a child and then that child would die and that there would be sibling rival in his family, family and incest and heartache and alienation. I mean, all kinds of bad things happen. Almost all because of this sleepless night when he maybe not so innocently, innocently, looks to another roof and sees her. It's, it's almost like if James is trying to tell us, just like we should want to say to David, danger, warning, warning, warning. Emily Dickinson wrote a poem. I, let me just share a few lines from it, sample it. Crumbling is not an instance act. Tis first a cobweb on the soul a cuticle of dust, an elemental rust, consecutive and slow. We don't always rush into sin. We usually don't rush into sin because James says when we are tempted, we are drawn in this luring way into what we want. It is a dangerous thing. Who's to blame? me. Why is it so dangerous? Because it just creeps and then finally runs towards something really dangerous. The last question is this one. Where's it all going to lead? 
Well, I mentioned uh, last week that James seems to be rooted in uh, the literature of the Old Testament that we sometimes call the wisdom literature, uh, poetry. Proverbs is a big part of that. In Proverbs, there is this story, this tragic story told about a man who put himself in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it ends up really bad. And in chapter 7, there's this wise man who is telling this story and offering counsel, and he's doing it from the vantage point of looking out through his window down on the street below. He has these, he's like looking out through the shutters, and he is watching this mindless crowd strolling by when he says this. And here's, here's what the text says. I spotted a young man without any sense, arriving at the corner where she lived, then turning up the path to her house. It was dusk, the evening coming on, the darkness thickening into the night. Just then, a woman met him. She had been lying in wait for him, dressed to seduce him. Brazen and brash she was, restless and roaming, never at home, walking the streets, hanging out at every corner in town. She threw her arms around him and kissed him. Boldly she took his arm and said, I've got all the makings for a great feast. Now I have come to find you, hoping to catch the sight of your face, and here you are. I spread out fresh, clean sheets on my bed, colorful, important, uh, imported linens. My head is aromatic. Come, let's make love all night. My husband is not home. He's away on business, and he won't be back for a month. Soon she has a meeting out of her hand, the wise man says, bewitched by her honeyed speech. And before you know it, he's trotting behind her like a calf to the butcher shop, like a stag lured into ambush and then shot with an arrow, like a bird flying into a net, not knowing that his flying life is over. So Frenzy says, listen to me, take these words of mine seriously. Don't fool around with a woman like that. Don't even stroll into her neighborhood. Then he closes out his story in this way. Countless victims come under her spell. She's the death of many a poor man. I especially think this is powerful. She runs a halfway house to hell, fits you out with a shroud and a coffin. Wisdom says, if you don't want to end up in her bed, don't wander into her neighborhood. It almost seems like it's a surprising find that he comes by her house and goes down her lane. I, I don't know. Is this how it is? As luck would have it, he finds her. As luck would have it, her husband happens to be on a business trip for a month. As luck would have it, or as the lure would have it, everything is set, everything is ready. This foolish fish wanders towards this enticing lure, which ultimately becomes his death. Somebody has said that sin is never stationary. The bait does not sit silent in the water, but it bobs and it floats and it glitters and it entices until we finally succumb to it and we chomp down on that and put the hook in our mouth. If you want to avoid the hook, don't swim in the water. Don't walk down her street. Or like King David, don't look over at somebody else and keep looking at somebody else and then acting on that look with somebody else. 
our text closes by changing the metaphors. It moves from this sport-like enticement to the bedroom and then to the delivery room. It says in the verses that we've seen, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. Warning, warning, sin almost always grows. Temptation almost always gets worse. You decide, you entertain the idea, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. Somebody has said in a wise way, watch your thoughts. They become your words. Watch your words. They become your actions. Watch your actions. They become your habits. Watch your habits. They become your character. Watch your character because it becomes your destiny. It's the scary anatomy of sin that he describes here. A glance towards a near, top, near rooftop, a walk in a questionable neighborhood, desire conceives, births the sin, and then finally when it is full grown, it delivers death. A lot of dead babies conceived out of our terrible actions. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's a German preacher and theologian in a book called Temptation said, with irresistible power, desire seizes over the flesh. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desires for the creature is real. It's like God, God just goes out of our mind and the only thing we can think about is what we're being enticed to do. And this powerful line, Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God but with forgetfulness of God. I'll guarantee you, most of the time, if you're in the middle of a really bad sin, you're not thinking about God. He's not the first one on your mind. That's, not, that's really not compatible with, with what you're doing. You, you forget or you push him out of your mind. I think that's why Jesus, when he taught us, was so concerned about what we thought there's another proverb, 4.23, that says, Keep vigilant watch over your heart. That's where your life starts. Or Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount put it this way again and again in chapter 5. He says, You have heard it said that you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that. But I say to you, and he always was contrasting the act with the beginning thought of the act. He says, You've been told you shouldn't kill somebody, but you, you shouldn't even think in a hateful way about somebody. You've been told that you shouldn't commit adultery, but, but I'm, I'm telling you, if you think about it, you've already started to conceive the act in your heart. In another place in Matthew 15, verse 18, Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth gets its start in your heart. Now that, that's depressing, and as I was going through putting this message together, I thought, well, man, that would be a bad place to stop. I mean, we've talked about, okay, we're responsible, and how it's so dangerous when you get in trouble and finally you end up with death. It's almost like, how do you get out of the funeral home? Well, let me just say a few quick things here at the end before, before we go. This is not what James has to say, but uh, for me, we've got to end on hope somehow or I'm going to go out of here you know, thinking we're dressed for the, for the funeral. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi and he said, uh, summon it all up, friends. This is in chapter 3, 8 and 9. He says, summoning it all up, friends. I'd say, You'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, and gracious. Put good stuff 
in your head. Garbage in, garbage out. Good stuff in, good stuff out. The best, not the worst, he says. The beautiful, not the ugly. Things to praise, not to curse. Put into practice what you learn from me. Do that and God who makes everything work together will work you into his most excellent harmonies. Fill your head, fill your mind with good stuff. Man, we've got access to all kinds of bad stuff today. The internet is a scary place to be if you're looking for scary stuff. Guard your heart. Because if it gets in your heart, it's going to get into your life. A couple, a couple assuring things that come to us also from the pen of Paul, though. When he was writing to the Christians at Corinth, mindful of this struggle, he said this. This is over in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's no test or temptation that comes your way that is beyond the course of others have had to face. Everybody faces temptation. Don't think that you're in a rare air there. All, of you, all you need to remember, he says, is that God will never let you down. He will never let you be pushed past your limit. He'll always be there to help you come through it. Yeah, temptation is real, and it's powerful, and it's deceptive, and it's going to suck you into its hole. But if you trust God, he will never let you get into a situation that is beyond your capacity with his help to say no. I know it doesn't feel like it in the moment, but he will help you in the moment. Now, we could stop there, but Paul, in his transparency, helps them to understand that he struggles with that back and forth between trust God, don't trust God, trust God, don't trust God, do the right thing, don't do the wrong thing. And it's beautiful how he is so transparent about that. And over in his Roman, uh, his letter to, uh, to the book at Rome, uh, in Rome, church at Rome, he says, if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I can decide to, get to, to do good, but I really don't do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. Are, are you with him, that, that struggle war that he has? My decisions, such as they are, don't always result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets better of me every time. It happens so regularly, so predictably. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expected, they, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question, he says. The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things straight in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all of my heart and my mind, but I am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Or the NIV says that in a familiar way. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ. Paul says, I am with you. I understand the struggle that you're facing. I know that you know what is right and you know what is wrong and you tell yourself, I'm going to do this and you do that. You, you are on that teeter-totter all of your life. But he says, I want you to know that you are helpless by yourself, but you are strong with Christ. Temptation. Who's to blame? Everybody else but me, no. I've got a claim that it's me. 
What's so dangerous about it? Because it's just so attractive. And it will bring me down that path towards action. How's it all going to turn out? Well, that depends on you. James says if you, if you let it grow, you will die. Paul says if you trust God, you can live. Fill your mind with those wholesome things that lead you into a relationship with him. Do not read James' warning and take it lightly. It's as if he's saying to us, warning, 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 temptation is a deadly, deadly thing. Let's pray. God, I know that if we've been, on, if we've been honest here, that all of us have thought about stuff in our lives that we have been tempted to do and some things that we've done. And there will be more things this afternoon and there will be more things tomorrow and there will be more things for the rest of our lives. And God, I pray that we will have heard what James has to say here and others that we've, that we've brought in. I pray that we will hear how responsible we are personally for how we act. I pray that you will help us to guard our hearts since temptation is so, so progressive. And God, I thank you so much for the hope that you give us through Christ. But we all confess here today that it's just hard. It really is hard a lot of times to do what we should. So be with us. Help this helplessness inside us to be complemented by your power and by your strength. Through Christ we pray. Amen.